but now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes and in many ways the dragon was easier to keep track of. So what we're seeing here is this kind of blending together of cyber operations and kinetic operations to form you know, what you might call cyber kinetics. There are many scenarios, China, uh, North Korea, possibly an accident, the Baltic states, the Arctic, where we might find ourselves operating in a nuclear battlefield. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within Army Futures Command, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. David Kilcullen. Dave is a best-selling author, leading researcher in the field of unconventional and guerrilla warfare, former professional soldier and diplomat, and president and CEO of Cordillera Applications Group. He'll be discussing the future of conflict, changing concepts of victory, and achieving decisive advantage. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Dave, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. Yeah, so it's really exciting to have you here. And you're known as one of the premier subject matter experts when you talk about counterinsurgency uh, and guerrilla warfare and conflict around the world. So can you tell our audience just a little bit more about how you got into this field and really what's been most interesting for you along the way? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, so, you know, as you can probably tell from the accent, I came up uh, in the Australian system and the Australian army, where, which I joined in 1985, is it's a, it's a guerrilla warfare, jungle warfare army, right? That's sort of what we consider to be normal. I'll just point out that until maybe 10 years ago, the Australian army didn't have a jungle warfare manual, nor did it have a counterinsurgency manual. It was just assumed in every manual that it was a jungle counterinsurgency environment. So we had to go and uh, address that when we ended up in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, after 2001 to say, hey, it's not always going to be like that. There is urban and there's a bunch of other stuff. So when I was going through the academy, virtually all of my instructors had served in Vietnam. Several of them had served in Borneo and in Malaya as well. So I had that sort of pretty steep, deep kind of input from people that really knew the business on guerrilla warfare and counter guerrilla warfare. But that's what I did. And as a young officer, like every other officer in the, in the Australian Army, I got sent off to do an Asian language. Um, it's essentially mandatory to have some kind of degree of foreign language skill to get promoted up beyond a certain rank in the military. So we all do that. And uh, in my case, I was selected for full immersion training for a year in Indonesian. Uh, I ended up running a bunch of training teams, uh, uh, what we call JSETs, up in Indonesia after that with the Indonesian military. And as part of that, I discovered that there was a whole guerrilla campaign of, of Islamic insurgency in Indonesia that at that time was not very well known in the West at all. And I decided to do my, my PhD uh, on that uh, rebellion. Turned out that that group that carried out that rebellion in the 50s and 60s was the forerunner group to a group called JI, Jamai Islamia, which is the Al Qaeda ally in Southeast Asia. So uh, in 2001, when you know the war on terror began, 
there wasn't a lot of knowledge in the Australian military or the Australian intelligence service or indeed many Western services about these guys and their precursor organization. But I happen to know them pretty well because I've been studying that group very closely for about a decade by that point. So I guess you could say it was kind of wrong place, wrong time, right? When the when the towers fell and the world changed on September the 11th, 2001, a small number of us had been looking at this stuff for a while and I got pitchforked into that pretty quickly. So that's how I sort of got into it. And then, as you may recall, we had some difficulty in Iraq and uh, in Afghanistan and I was asked to come over and assist on those campaigns in the US, initially in the Pentagon and then in the State Department in the Bureau for Counterterrorism and ended up serving in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, a couple other places in Africa, and of course in Iraq during the surge. So what's the most interesting? To me, I think the most interesting element of it from an academic standpoint has been watching how rapidly the US military in particular adapted and evolved to that threat, to go from being, I would would argue, well behind the curve in 2001 to being unarguably, in my mind today, one of the best counterinsurgency and counter-guerrilla militaries that there's ever been. Now, that's tactical. There's a bigger strategic picture about whether the wars were worth it and whether the decision to go into Iraq was justified and all that. But in terms of actual execution on the ground, I think Americans should actually be pretty proud of what the US military's pulled off in the 20-odd years since uh, 9-11. No, absolutely. Thank you for telling us about, you know, how you got here and, and those insights. Uh, and I want to ask you more about that later, too, about uh, the idea of, of the strengths that we have now in this counterinsurgency, counter-guerrilla fight. In your most recent book, uh, The Dragons and the Snakes, How the Rest Learned to, to Fight the West, can you tell us more about how did you come to writing this book? So we've, you know, I've read uh, Coming Out of the Mountains, uh, Accidental Gorilla, and, and a lot of your other books. And, and there's been a, a large focus on counterinsurgency, guerrilla movements, um, and things like this. So how did you come to write this book? Uh, who are the dragons and the snakes? And really, why does it matter for our future? So I started writing the book in 2012, and I got sidetracked like all of us did when ISIS broke out in Iraq. So I had to set the book aside for two or three years while all of that was playing out and we were reacting to the, to the ISIS breakout. Um, I came back to it in 2017 and finished it just in time for the COVID-19 pandemic to, uh, <laughs> to shut the world down. Essentially, what I'm addressing in, in uh, The Dragons and the Snakes is an observation that I made you know, over my periods in Iraq and Afghanistan and everywhere else, noting that different actors, both states and non-states, and groups with different ideology, and in many cases, groups that didn't have a strong track record of cross-pollinating ideas, all seem to be converging on rather similar types of operational styles. Um, Small teams, modular organization, uh, integrating cyber with kinetic activity, urban operations, whole series of things that were common features of many different players, from the Chinese and the Russians to the Iranians, to ISIS, to the Taliban, um, to various groups in Africa, you know, just a lot of commonality uh, among different groups. And I came to the view that this is an adaptive response, like an evolutionary response to the conditions of the global conflict environment that we in the West created in 1991 in the Gulf War. And I think most people 
listening to the podcast are old enough to remember what a transformative event 1991 was. Uh, we effectively changed the rules of the game for everybody. And people realise that if you go up against the Americans or their allies in a manner that's similar to how Saddam did, you know, in the open, conventionally arrayed, force on force, um, you know, deployed in neat straight lines, the outcome is going to be some variation of the highway of death in February 1991. And it turns out that that's actually true. A lot of actors did sit up, take notice, and realise they couldn't operate in the way they had been. And what's happened to us is that from 1991 onward, we sort of congealed our way of operating and we call it conventional because that's what we're good at. But what it actually is, is high-tech, system of systems, battlefield-centric, precision uh, weapon systems, force on force, you know, all the elements that we consider to be conventional are actually just one particular very narrow subset of what conflict is, right? And everybody else has figured out that they need to get out of that space and adapt away from it in order to, um, to survive in, in an environment where we are so dominant in that one particular narrow conventional form of warfare. So what I do in the book is spend a chapter or so looking at the evolutionary mechanisms that drive that. And I tap into evolutionary theory, um, ecology, biology, a bunch of other disciplines to complement the existing work that a lot of people are familiar with that uh, looks at innovation and sort of business literature, right, about how people adapt in a competitive environment. And that's not to diss any of that. It's very good stuff. It's just that there's other elements of, of what is happening here that are worth looking at. So I spend a bit of time on the theory, um, but then it, the rest of the book is case studies. And I went back and looked at the thought process that the Chinese adopted after 1991 and how that led them to where they are now. I look at how the Russians changed since the collapse of the Soviet Union, which also happened to occur in 1991. Uh, I look at the Iranians and the North Koreans, at Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, number of other actors, and trace their evolution forward to now. And essentially say, look, the style of operating that we pioneered in 1991 is sort of being overtaken by events now. People have adapted to the point where it's not working as well as it was. And in fact, our own distraction or tunnel vision on terrorism, if you like, since 9-11 has created space for a lot of these adversaries to adapt and evolve around us. So we need to think anew about how to operate in the new operating environment. So that, that's, that's the essence of the book. So the dragons are state actors, the snakes are non-state actors, and that um, term comes from Jim Wolsey, who was uh, President Clinton's CIA director, who said in 1993, we've slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union, but now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes, and in many ways the dragon was easier to keep track of. And I basically show that uh, the dragons are back, <laughs> but they've spent 20 years learning from the snakes, and they are operating in a way that's much more snake-like or non-state actor-like than we might expect. And at the same time, advances in technology and connectivity have meant that the snakes can now acquire levels of lethality and capability that you used to have to be a dragon to get. So we're dealing with both dragons and snakes at the same time and in many of the same places. And our traditional model that, you know, wowed the world in 1991 
doesn't really work anymore in that environment. No, absolutely. That's a, a, a great analogy for when we think about democratization of technology um, and these disruptive trends in technologies that we're seeing. So that kind of segues me, right? So you were talking about, um, you know, the, the focus on terrorism. So we have troops right now being pulled out of Afghanistan, um, really throughout Africa, kind of receding from uh, the great big presence that we've had over the last really 20 years almost. And and with that happening, uh, is the global war on terrorism over? Is it done or is it all great power conflict is back? What's your take on that? Uh, no, the war on terrorism is not over. I think the GWAT, as it was um, construed during the Bush administration, you know, large scale, long term occupations of foreign countries by conventional troops in, you know, in their hundreds of thousands, that mode of fighting the great the global war on terrorism is over, but it's been over for a decade, right? That, that's not a new thing. Um, the terrorism threat is still there. It is real. It's very adaptive. Places like Afghanistan, we still deal with more or less victorious Taliban. The threat in Africa is much more significant. If you compare terrorism on 9-11 to terrorism now, we're dealing with not one or two, but three organisations each of which is the size that Al-Qaeda was on 9-11. And we're dealing with a vast array of terrorism threats in places like Europe and Africa and Southeast Asia and the Middle East uh, and indeed in North America that um, were, didn't even exist in 2001. So the threat is very real, but the way we're going to fight it, I su suggest is going to be much more intelligence and special operations, much less of a large footprint wars of occupation style. And you could argue that we've spent really the last 17 years trying to dig ourselves out of a hole of our own making when we decided to invade Iraq. But we have finally disengaged from that very large scale presence that we had for almost two decades now. Uh, and I think we want to be extraordinarily wary about re-engaging in wars of occupation. Uh, luckily, I think we've got assets available and also a forced posture forward that will allow us to um, maintain pressure on terrorist networks without having to get back into uh, the sort of forever wars that we've seen since 9-11. But in the same time frame, we've seen a resurgence of great power conflict. So we're dealing with China, Russia, global terrorism. We're dealing with issues on the Korean Peninsula, right? I think that's less of an issue. And then most importantly, um, Iran as major threats. So a mix of state and non-state actors. So it's not as simple as, gee, what's over, let's get into GPC. It's no, conventional warfare is part of the mix, but it is only part of the mix. Likewise, counterinsurgency will remain part of the mix, but only part of it. And we're going to have to do all of these things at the same time. And indeed, you know, in many of the same theaters. I think that brings up a really interesting point. So one of the things that, you know, we've we've thought about is uh, this concept of victory. We haven't really experienced this in a while. This this kind of you mentioned 1991, and that's really the last time um, you, you can look at some smaller victories. If you think about uh, what was done in Kosovo later on, um, but really that great big victory, bring home the troops parade. We haven't we haven't seen that. Is victory a dated concept? Are we ever going to? go back to having a conventional victory again? Are we looking at kind of these forever wars? The short answer is it depends, right? If anyone is ever stupid enough to fight us again in the same way that Saddam did, 
there will be a conventional victory because that's what we are extraordinarily good at, right? Crushing people on the battlefield that choose to fight us in that way. But, you know, my old mate from Iraq and Afghanistan, HR McMaster, says there's only two ways to fight the United States, asymmetric and stupid. And I think if anyone is stupid enough, they'll suffer that fate. And you could argue that the closest to uh, anyone that's tried to do that since 1991 was the conventional part of ISIS during the battles of Mosul, Raqqa, uh, and so on um, between 2014 and 2019. And they were absolutely crushed uh, in the same way that, that Saddam was. But notice that that didn't get rid of ISIS, right? All that did was force them to drop back from conventional Saddam-style manoeuvre and getting their asses kicked back to guerrilla operations, cell-based, low-profile, you know, combination of terrorism and insurgency, which makes them much more survivable and much harder to crush. So arguably you could say that our very success in conventional victory has forced everybody to adapt away from that to the point where we're very unlikely to ever have a conventional victory again unless somebody chooses to fight that way. I would make a broader point too. Uh, JFC Fuller, the, the British general from World War I, made a point that the object of war is not victory, it's a better peace, right? Better in the sense of more stable, more advantageous to us, more prosperous, more humanitarian, whatever it is. And what that means is that victory is actually not in the hands of the military, it's in the hands of the nation. And we have had repeatedly um, since 9-11 a series of tactical military victories over the Taliban, who we've defeated at least three times in the field, um, over the Iraqi state, uh, which we defeated in three and a half weeks in 2003. Uh, we defeated the Iraqi guerrillas in 2007 during the surge. But each time we fail to translate tactical victory in the field into successful war termination. And frankly, that, that's not a military problem, right? Uh, it's a problem of the nation as a whole and of political leaders in particular. And if we don't uh, start educating political decision makers on how to end a war and what that involves, I think that um, we're really going to struggle to ever successfully terminate these conflicts. Uh, and one other point is, you know, we, there is a certain Hollywood view of World War II, uh, which makes out the notion that you're going to nuke your adversary or occupy their country and they are going to unconditionally surrender and that'll be the end of their entire way of life and we will then reconstruct them in the way we want to and turn them into allies, right? And it sort of implies that that's normal or it's the way that it should be. But we should recognise, right, as military professionals that what the end of World War II was just radically abnormal, right? Um, that's not how wars normally end. And, in fact, after the, the conference where the Allied leaders got together and called for unconditional surrender from the Axis powers, the response in Berlin and Rome and Tokyo was, what? Like, they just couldn't literally believe that that's what we seriously intended. And there were a lot of attempts during the last phase of World War II to get out of that unconditional surrender. And we stuck to our guns. We managed to achieve that goal. But unless you happen to be fighting, you know, the Nazis uh, in the future... It's highly unlikely that we're going to see that again. So I think we're going back to more of a normal kind of messy political end to wars. And that, that does constitute victory, but it doesn't constitute, you know, World War II in the Pacific. 
where you nuke your adversary and it's over. Uh, it's much more uh, a matter of the military setting conditions for politicians to terminate the war on a basis that's favourable to us. And we've, we, the military, have done that repeatedly since 9-11. We've just failed to close the deal uh, at the political level. And I think that's something that, you know, frankly, you could radically transform the US military. That's not going to solve the problem, right? It's, it, it rests at a different level in our system. To pull that string a little bit, do you think that it's going to require a greater kind of whole of government effort, or do you think it's it's solely kind of that relationship between elected officials um, and, and military, the military who's really carrying out their policies? I, I don't think that it's about interagency coordination. I think we're actually already pretty good at that. We're as good as our polit- political leaders want us to be. Um, no, I would actually, I'm quoting this off the top of my head, but just to quote... Um, possibly paraphrasing Clausewitz, right? He says, the first and most important decision that a soldier and a statesman have to make is rightly to understand the nature of the war they are confronting, neither mistaking it for nor trying to turn it into something that it's not. Now, the most important word in that phrase or that, that quote is they, right? He's not talking about a soldier or a statesman coming up with that understanding. He's talking about a dialogue between political leaders and military leaders in which they jointly come up to an understanding of what the problem set is that they are dealing with. The best book on this is um, Elliot Cohen's book, Supreme Command, where he talks about what he calls the unequal dialogue between military professionals and, uh, and leaders. You know, Janine Davidson also wrote a great book called The Fog of Peace, talking about um, how uh, civil-military relations needs to be founded on that that dialogue. And I think we've sort of lost that, right? We've got into a thing where political leaders just say, I'm handing over control of the water to the generals, and you know, once it's done, um, we're all good to go. But that's not how it works, right? You, you, you cannot um, uh, take either the military or the political element out of that discussion. It has to be a dialogue. But as Elliot points out, it's an unequal dialogue, right, in a democracy with civil control of the military, politicians ultimately always call the shots, but they have to do so on the basis of best military advice. Uh, And I think that's where, you know, on both sides, we've fallen down in the last 20 years. Politicians have tended to regard the only thing that matters as being the troop ceiling, right? How many troops have we got in Afghanistan? That's all we really care about. Political uh, military leaders have tended to self-censor on what's actually needed to do the job. Um, and I think we've got to get back to a more robust, open, free dialogue uh, if we're going to um, make this work in the future. So I want to talk a little bit about the future now, because you've talked in your previous answers, you've kind of hit on the periphery of, of what the future is going to look like. Um, we've discussed how the enemy won't fight us or shouldn't fight us. But um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what that future will look like. So what do you think are going to be some defining characteristics of conflict in the future? And, and conversely, what do you think is probably being overhyped? So I think one um, defining characteristic is going to be what I call liminal warfare in the book which is just a fancy way of saying sub-threshold or threshold conflict. Uh, The British term sub-threshold conflict is probably uh, a better one. The point that I make in the book is that we're in this grey zone, which everyone's been talking about for a while, but grey in a very particular area in that it's no longer feasible to do covert or clandestine operations because of pervasive social media and connectivity and all that. But at the same time, people like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping 
have demonstrated that you don't actually have to be covert or clandestine. You can get away with a huge amount by being ambiguous, right? And I use in the book the case study of the Russians in Crimea and the Chinese in the South China Sea to show how um, concepts like the Chinese idea of unrestricted warfare or the three warfares doctrine um, get outside our boundaries of how we define warfare and mean that uh, they're able to engage in warfare against us without us noticing until it's too late. Another element is, again, um, this style of operating that is small teams, autonomous self-organizing teams that operate in a swarm enabled by AI and or connectivity, usually in an urban environment, uh, blending into the physical and the human terrain of where they're operating and then engaging um, in this sort of very fluid, rapid operations in a complex, cluttered environment. We are not good at that, right? Um, our adversaries are really good at that. And I have a pretty detailed description of how they operate in the book. I'll just point out that there's nothing fundamentally nefarious or weird about how they operate. There's no reason why we couldn't adopt a similar operating style, um, you know, obviously within rule of law and ethical constraints. I think the most important thing there is to get out of our defensive crouch and stop thinking about the world as being peopled by these incredibly complex, difficult threats. That's a mindset hangover from the war on terrorism. We've got to be aggressive and take the initiative ourselves and think about ourselves as doing the lurking rather than the threat. And then the third thing that I point to, and there's plenty more we could talk about, but the third one that I mention is what I call cyber kinetic operations. So we're used to thinking about cyber warfare as kind of a standalone element where I do a cyber attack to attack your data. And the worst thing I can do to you is screw with your information with a cyber attack. Increasingly now, with the Internet of Things, with SCADA systems running really important infrastructure, um, with people tied into very connected high-tech um, operating systems, it is increasingly possible to carry out a direct lethal attack that actually kills and wounds people using nothing but a cyber element to carry that out. So cyber attacks with lethal effect and cyber warfare becoming an adjunct maneuver domain that sits along with electromagnetic spectrum, space, air, maritime, and land as just part of the maneuver space. At the same time, we're seeing kinetic operations that have a data effect. So like when the Russian little green men came into Crimea, one of their first targets was the Simferopol um, fiber optic data exchange where they took that down, routed all the traffic through Moscow for a period, uh, and then reinstituted a communication system physically uh, that served their interests. Likewise, you can see kinetic attacks, you know, EMP weapons or high explosive on data systems that have a data effect with a lethal or a kinetic move. So what we're seeing here is this kind of blending together of cyber operations and kinetic operations to form, you know, what you might call cyber kinetics. Uh, the Russians are doing it. We've seen them do it a lot, a lot in Ukraine, uh, US Marine Corps um, and uh, some others, like the Aussies, are really getting into this. Uh, U.S. Army also, I know, is thinking about it, not fully aware of where that sits right now, but uh, I think that's going to be a really important element of future conflict. One of the things I think is overhyped is this notion of sort of political warfare disinformation. And I, I talk in the book about how, you know, the argument that the Russians hacked the 2016 election is fundamentally just not supported by the facts, um, never has been. 
you can understand why some people took it up for political reasons, but the notion that people can reach in and screw with us politically, um, you know, using a few hundred thousand dollars on Facebook is just well overblown in my view. Uh, and of course, we don't really need foreign actors to screw with us. We do a perfectly good job of that ourselves without needing the Russians or the Chinese. So um, I think we need to, again, sort of break out of that defensive crouch idea. So it's interesting you mentioned disinformation as being overhyped. We, we spent a whole summer this past summer uh, dedicated to figuring out disinformation. So we always like when our assumptions are challenged. You know, that's why we, that's why we have this mad scientist program. So I, I do appreciate that part of your answer. And kind of pulling along that same line uh, of the threats you were outlining in the future there, we've got adversaries across the globe who are eclipsing us in some niche areas. And, you know, that's due to modernization efforts, democratization of technology. And we're being challenged across all domains. So now how do we fight back and how do we do so in a resource-constrained environment? Yeah. So let me just clarify a point on political warfare um, or, you know, disinformation. Um, The Russians have really specialized in particular in integrating political warfare into kinetic maneuver, right? I think that is new and it's really important and we need to spend a lot of time thinking about what the implications of that are, right? The way that they used a political warfare campaign to delay NATO's response during the seizure of Crimea until they completed their physical maneuver, like that's a really important development. What I'm talking about is standalone, right? Political warfare only. I think that's about as limited in its effect as standalone cyber warfare. And we're at the point with political warfare now that we're at thinking about cyber maybe 10 years ago. And what we've realized in the last decade about cyber is that cyber warfare is most effective when it's a seamless part of an integrated whole that includes kinetic and everything else. Uh, It doesn't really fit reality that you're going to see a pure standalone cyber war. I think that's my point, right, with respect to disinformation. We're going to see disinformation. It is important, but it goes along with MILDEC. It goes along with PSYOP. It goes along with information exploitation as part of a sort of integrated whole that also includes, you know, artillery and tanks and special operators and all that. Um, And I think that's where it comes into its own. So I think we need to think about it for sure. Just think about it maybe a bit differently from how the New York Times does, you know, um, as something that's a real element but um, not some kind of magic um, uh, aspect of, you know, a Russian under every rock. Um, In terms of, you know, niche capabilities, yeah, absolutely. So the last chapter of the book, I get into this in great detail and I say, given that our conventional model isn't really working, that we're stretched in a variety of places and that adversaries are ahead of us in some niche capabilities, I would point to Chinese space warfare, I point to quantum computing, um, bioweapons as discussed. You know, there's a, there's a number of them out there. How do we react to that? And I say we basically have three options. One is we can double down, right? So we can just say, look, let's just keep doing what we've been doing. Let's just do it harder, right? So spend more money, um, put more effort in, uh, do what we're doing now, but just do it more aggressively. I don't think that's going to work, right? Because if your military model has already reached the point where it's losing effectiveness and adversaries have adapted past the point where it's decisive anymore, then doing that harder isn't going to make things better, right? It's probably going to make them worse, actually, because we'll be spending more money and we'll just decline faster. Um, The second that I look at is the second option or COA would be just embrace the suck, right? Just accept that, yeah, you know what? Everybody declines. We too are declining, it's a fact of life and we just need to get used to the fact that our star will be eclipsed and we're going to end up in a world where the Chinese are the dominant player 
and we just need to make our peace with that and learn to do, do the best we can. I reject that not only on, you know, self-respect grounds, right, but also on the, on the basis that that's not actually really true, right? I don't think we can just accept decline because that implies that there's going to be a subsequent player who's actually able to take the role that the U.S. has had, uh, that wants to do that, and that is friendly enough to us that we would find that acceptable. And if you look around the horizon, there just isn't a player like that. You know, the Russians can't do it, Chinese don't want to do it, and they're certainly neither of those guys are friendly enough to us that we would accept that anyway. So I don't think embracing the suck is an option. My third koa I call going Byzantine, and I point out in the book that, you know, the Roman Empire collapsed in the 4th century. The Byzantines survived until 1500s, right? And how did they manage to survive for an extra 1,000 years after the collapse of the rest of the, the Roman Empire? And I look at things like better integration of civil military capability, a much more efficient system at home to integrate um, their own national forces, focusing on light footprint, expeditionary um, uh, presence forward, working really closely with niche local allies, dominance of certain particular technologies um, in, uh, that enable them to have a, um, uh, a much greater degree of striking power than they otherwise would have, and then uh, willingness to accept temporary setbacks and manoeuvre in a flexible fashion where the objective of manoeuvre was longevity, right, not immediate unconditional defeat of an adversary, but rather surviving to fight another day and doing it at a sustainable cost. Um, I think all those elements are there now in our system. Um, it just needs a slightly different mindset to make it work. This next question is one of the most important that we can ask um, because it, it gives us the opportunity to step outside of our own thinking. So, so what, in your opinion, do you think are we missing? You know, what's the army not thinking about? And I mean that from headquarters DA level all the way down to me and Luke at the action officer level. Well, I don't really know what you guys are missing. I can tell you a few things that I'm not seeing in the discussion, and maybe you guys are having that discussion uh, behind the scenes, but, you know, so I, let me point to three. One, I've already talked about bioweapons. I don't see a lot of discussion on uh, getting back to the levels or, or ideally exceeding the levels of CBRN um, or NBC defence capability that we had during the Cold War. And, you know, um, this stuff moves quickly, and I would argue that, we need to be able to operate in a bio-denied environment and we need to be getting ahead of the curve on that, um, particularly for armoured forces and, um, and aviation, right? Infantry are a little bit less vulnerable because they're dispersed, uh, but still, th that's a threat that I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about and I, I think it's worth uh, focusing on. A second one to think about is how do we fight unplugged, right? So... In September, the Chinese launched the final, sorry, in June, the Chinese launched the final satellite for their system that now completely replicates and competes with GPS. For most of the last 30 years, the whole world has been content to use a US military satellite system, GPS, to um, generate global navigation and timing systems, which are now so ubiquitous that there's actually more GPS devices on the planet than there are humans, right? There's about 10 billion GPS-enabled devices now. The Chinese just in September went to their IOC capacity on their new equivalent to GPS. That means they are now our first major adversary that doesn't need GPS and could knock it out at any moment. China also has a really advanced 
uh, space warfare capability. Now, you might think, well, we've got a space force. Uh, we've got the Air Force. Um, yeah, that's all true. But, you know, the biggest user by number of GPS systems on the planet is the Army um, because there's so many uh, deployed platforms on the ground. So uh, we need to become much more comfortable with how do we operate in a GPS-denied or a space warfare environment. So that means no GPS. It means no TACSAT. It means no satellite comms of any kind. Probably data links are down. It means that remotely piloted aircraft or UAVs are going to struggle to operate. It means that all of our GPS-driven precision fires are going to go um, bad. So how do we operate unplugged? And I think that's a really important element that I would like to see us getting ahead of. Um, I know the Air Force is already thinking about this. I know the Navy's been thinking about it for a while. Uh, but I really think we need to be exercising in a complete GPS grid down environment on a regular basis and treating that as the norm and GPS is more of a luxury. Adversaries have recognized how dependent we are on those systems. And I think uh, that the days of the invulnerable GPS are more or less over. And then the other one that I think is worth thinking about, and you know, again, we don't really talk about it much, is the nuclear battlefield. There are many scenarios, China, uh, North Korea, possibly an accident, um, the Baltic states, the Arctic, where we might find ourselves operating in a nuclear battlefield. It's really a generation since we thought about that seriously, and I think we need to go back to it. Um, Russia in particular, as I talk about in the book, has a very extensive suite of sub-tactical, sub-kiloton nuclear weapons, and the Russians regard nukes as just a species of large artillery. Um, we tend to regard them as, you know, militarily unusable super weapons uh, that are there for political and deterrence purposes. That's not how our adversaries think of them. Now, the Chinese have a much less advanced arsenal, but they are growing rapidly by the day in their capability. And I think the idea that we might, again, fight a peer adversary without it going nuclear, I think is just highly unlikely. And we need to be getting our heads around not just the issue of how do we prevent a nuclear war, but how do we fight one if it comes to if it comes to that? And that's something that you know we hate thinking about, so we don't think about it. But it's, it's something I would I would rather see us think about harshly and in a clear-eyed manner, and then understand what the realities of that are. No, absolutely, that's really insightful, if not horribly frightening. But uh, <laughs> no, but really appreciate it. And uh, so we're going to transition to what we call our rapid-fire questions. But please take your time. Uh, but these are questions we like to ask all of our guests that come on. Uh, first is, what technology or trend really keeps you up at night? Technology, uh, quantum uh, computing. Chinese are ahead of us on that. They are well ahead of anybody else on the planet. Uh, we, uh, we think we're better at this than we actually are. It's going to transform every element other than, um, or every element of, of business and everything else, and we need to catch up ASAP. Um, what trend keeps me um, up at night? Mate, domestic um, weakness in the United States. You, you can be strong overseas, but you cannot maintain that unless you are united and are reconciled and are unified at home. I think that our biggest weaknesses are right now domestic and internal, not uh, overseas. And then uh, what's something about you most people might not know that you're willing to share on the podcast? <sighs> wow. There's so many things. I'm very happy to keep it that way uh, that people don't know about me. I think um, most people know I like to hunt and hike and shoot and fish and all that. And uh, living out here in uh, Colorado has been a, 
um, major improvement to my lifestyle, I have to say. Um, I became a citizen in 2014, having lived in uh, the US since about 2004. And at the time, I was like, I'm super happy to be an American, but there's things that I don't totally love about America. When I moved out to Colorado, I realized it's not America, it's Washington. And when you get out of the DC area, out of that bubble, uh, and you realize like just the amazing nature of the country we live in and the, um, you know, what's out there. You know, I live 20 minutes from some of the best fly fishing in North America, drive an hour west, you're in some of the best elk hunting terrain on the planet. Um, some of the best rivers for kayaking, you know, in the world are in our back door. Uh, just, you know, people need to sort of realize what a wonderful place this is and how we need to protect it, right? And, um, and keep it for future generations. Absolutely. So this last question we like to ask kind of tells us a little bit more about our guests, really. And so what is your favorite movie? I have very lowbrow taste in, uh, in comedy, I have to say. I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you my favorite movie and then my favorite movie moment. My favorite movie, hands down, is The Big Lebowski. There's just something about it. I was once flying across from London to the, to the US on a, you know overnight red-eye flight. I was watching Big Lebowski and I was laughing so loud that people were smacking the back of my chair and going, shut up, right? Because I was keeping everybody awake. Just this, the, the way that Jeff Bridges captures that character and just the Coen brothers generally, but that movie in particular... Um, is, is probably my, my, my favourite one. My favourite movie moment is in one of the Austin Powers movies. I think it might be when they're in space, you know, and you've got Mini-Me and Austin Powers knocks Mini-Me out with this really bell-like ringing sound and knocks him out and then he gets all sympathetic and Mike Myers' character is all, you know, oh, poor little guy. And then Mini-Me jumps up, rushes at him and bites him in the nuts, right? And I, I've almost wet myself watching that uh, scene multiple times. And to me, it's almost like a bit of a, an analogy for how war fighting goes, right? The big guy knocks the little guy out um, and then he comes back asymmetric and, uh, and changes the game. So, you know, um, that's probably not the most edifying couple of examples for your listeners. <laughs> that'd, be my, that'd be my two. That's my favourite movie moment. I, I, I get, go on YouTube and watch that one little bit from, I think it's uh, The Spy Who Loved Me and, uh, and you guys will... You'll do it. I can top of that, but I'll try. So, so <laughs> Dave, we really appreciate you coming on today and talking to us about uh, about your book and about uh, uh, how we're going to fight in the future and giving us your insights. Uh, where can people follow your work? Do you, do you have a Twitter? Are you online? I do have a Twitter handle. I never use it. I'm not a big big believer in uh, in social media. Um, I occasionally post on LinkedIn. People can find me there. Um, my company website, Cordillera Applications Group. If you Google that, you'll, you'll find some of the stuff that we put up periodically in terms of research products. Um, and then I teach at Arizona State University and also University of New South Wales down in Australia. So um, I'm available on those, those sites. Um, so once again, Dave, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, guys. Great, great to be here. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David Kilcullen of the Cordillera Applications Group. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.